Well, brethren, as we begin to address the issues before us in this hour, let us once more seek the face of God for his help and his blessing upon our endeavors. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again that we have the changeless and wonderful invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We thank you for the obtaining and the finding that is promised us as we come through our great mediator and high priest, the Lord Jesus, and beseech you for all that we need that we might profit in this hour. We pray for your help to be given to the one who lectures and to each one who sits before that lecture. Grant, our Father, that we may mutually be conscious of the presence and ministry and help of your Holy Spirit. Give us, we plead, discernment and wisdom and understanding of yourself, of your word, and of your ways. We plead these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, brethren, having set before you in the previous hour what I called a general introduction to the entire course in pastoral theology, we come this hour to begin to address what I have chosen to designate as the call of the man of God to the pastoral office. Now let me attempt to ease my way into the subject with you by explaining why I have chosen this terminology, the call of the man of God to the pastoral office. I've chosen the term man of God because it is a biblical term, a term that is rich in both its Old and New Testament usage. We find in Deuteronomy 33.1 in Joshua 14.6 that this was a designation used of Moses. He is called Moses the man of God. We find it appearing in the book of Kings with respect to the prophets and among them Elijah, who is called man of God in 1 Kings 17 and verse 18. And then in Paul's letters to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul says, but you, O man of God. And then, of course, in the text familiar to all of us, 2 Timothy 3, 17, these things that are given to us in the scriptures are given to the end that the man of God may be complete or perfect furnished unto every good work. So with the designation of the great leader and head of the prophetic order in Israel, Moses, man of God, the unique place of Elijah in the and among the prophets, and then finding the term picked up and applied to that man who most closely approximates what we would call a man set apart for standing pastoral duties, though it's a debated issue as to what his precise identity was as an apostolic representative, I think it's a good term to use when we think in terms of a man who is fashioned by God into a minister of the new covenant and recognized in the church as a gift of the ascended Christ. And so I've chosen that term because of its rich roots in the Scripture 
and because of the constant emphasis that I will be given to the fact that it is the man that makes the minister and not the ministry that makes the man. And then it's obvious that I've chosen to bypass the ordinary terminology of a call to preach or a call to the ministry. Rather, I have chosen the words, the call of the man of God to the pastoral office. Now, I've done this not to be novel. I'm one who has a great respect for the old verbal coinage of the people of God. And I don't lightly uh, throw it away or choose to use other coinage. However, ideas are captured and shaped and conveyed by words. And it's my judgment that much of the confusion and imprecision regarding this whole subject of a call to the ministry, a call to preach, is perpetuated by the older and more common terminology of the call to preach or a call to the ministry. I use the terminology I'm using to reflect a sensitivity to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. The ESV renders it, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer. Or, as Fairbairn suggests, we might use more literally, if anyone desires or reaches out after overseership. In other words, in that most relevant passage, giving the requirements for one who has reason to believe he is being fashioned into a gift of Christ to the church, the designation of his function is not just preaching or ministry, but it is locked into the concept of an overseer, an elder, a bishop in Christ's church, with all that that involves. It's interesting that John Brown, writing on this matter in in his commentary in 1 Peter, writes on page 188 of volume 3 in his commentary on 1 Peter. It is a comparatively modern, at any rate, it is not a New Testament usage to apply the term pastor exclusively to those teaching elders, that is, to those who labor in the word and in doctrine, that term naturally expressing the whole work of the Christian eldership And, like the kindred term, bishop, being given in the New Testament to Christian elders indiscriminately. But that such a distinction as that between elders who taught and ruled, and elders who only, and I would add, primarily ruled, existed from the beginning, is made probable by the reasonableness and almost necessity of the arrangement and its obvious tendency to secure the gaining in the best way and in the greatest degree the ends of the Christian eldership, and appears to me proved by the passage in First Epistle to Timothy 5.17, of which, after all that has been said for the purpose of reconciling it to the Episcopal or independent order of church polity, I am disposed to say with Dr. Owen that, quote, on the first proposal of this text, that the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine, a rational man who is unprejudiced, who never heard of the controversy about ruling elders, can hardly avoid an apprehension that there are two sorts of elders, some of whom labor in word and doctrine, and some 
who do not do so. And so to capture the concept of a person whose identity is primarily an elder, a presbyteros, an episkopos, a poimen, that it is that fundamental office identity with respect to one whose gifts are such as to warrant him being set apart to labor in the word and in teaching, that we are talking about a call to the pastoral office in that sense. And much of the imprecision of thought about people feeling a call to preach as though preaching were the beginning, middle, and end of the responsibility of the pastoral office. It is not. It is, as I said, a primary public function. Preaching is central to the public functions, but it does not capture the entire spectrum of what it is to be a gift of the ascended Christ to the church as a shepherd. And so I'm using this terminology, the call of the man of God to the pastoral office, hoping to capture more accurately that strand of biblical emphasis. So I ease my way into the subject with you by addressing the matter of terminology. Then secondly, I want to consider with you the biblical warrant for addressing this subject, the subject of the call of the man of God to that office. And I set before you uh, the following arguments. Number one, the clear responsibility of every individual man in the church. In Romans chapter 12, you remember the apostle has laid out systematically the whole scope of God's great saving acts in Jesus Christ. And in the light of them, he calls all believers to this giving of themselves as a living sacrifice unto God, a commitment on the one hand not to be fashioned according to this age or this world, but constantly transformed by the renewing of the mind that they may prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then in verse 3, For I say, the apostle writes, through the grace that was given to me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but so to think as to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to each man a measure of faith. Within the context of the church, with a disposition of glad response to the saving mercies of God in Christ, every man within the church is called to this exercise of sober self-assessment with respect to the measure of giftedness with which God has endowed him. It is to be a sober assessment. And it's interesting that though some may underestimate, Paul does not believe that underestimation is the primary practical danger. So he says that none is to think of himself more highly, but to think soberly. In other words, his assessment of himself is to answer to what he is in himself by the giftedness of God. He's to know his true state in terms of giftedness. That's a responsibility. And if that is a responsibility laid upon every man in the body of Christ, then there must be 
some biblical materials that will help a man to make that sober assessment regarding his giftedness and how it fits in the purpose of God. And then a second reason why I believe it is incumbent upon us to wrestle with this issue of what constitutes a call to the pastoral office is the sober warnings to anyone contemplating any public teaching office, including the pastoral office. And of course, that warning is found most succinctly and pointedly in James chapter 3 and verse 1. Be not many of you teachers, my brethren, knowing that we, James including himself, shall receive heavier judgment. Lenski's comments are most helpful. The participle states the reason that many should not want to avail themselves of this privilege, that is, of being public teachers, since you know that we shall receive greater judgment. James says, we shall receive. He includes himself. He's teaching in this epistle and is a teaching elder in the congregation at Jerusalem. He shows that he feels the weight of responsibility, or rather, his accountability because of thus teaching. Every one of us who assumes to teach, whether he is in office or not, shall receive greater or heavier judgment, namely from God. God will hold us the more answerable. This, of course, means in case we are faulty or wrong in what we teach or in the manner of our teaching, the claim that to receive judgment means to receive condemnation goes too far. James did not expect condemnation for his teaching, nor does he intend to say that all teachers will be condemned. Crima is and remains a vox media. God will look more closely at all teachers when he judges them. Teachers undertake to convey God's word in the way in which God wants it conveyed. God will judge them on that score. Those who do not teach will, of course, not be judged in this way. Well, surely, with this warning before us, brethren, we want to be as certain as we can be of anything that we have not intruded into the pastoral office, which is fundamentally a teaching office when we are set apart to labor in the Word and in teaching. And then in the light of Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them, for they watch for your souls as they that shall give an account. They watch in the light of the reality that they will be held accountable for that watchfulness over you. And again, we don't want to miss our way with so weighty a matter set before us in a text such as Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And then thirdly, we do have the encouragement coupled with a God-given standard. The First Timothy 3, 1 passage to which we will come back subsequently But faithful is the saying. This was one of those five sanctified cliches now present among the churches by the time the pastoral epistles are written. And one of those faithful sayings is, if a man aspires, stretches out after and lusts after the office of oversight, he desires a good work. The overseer therefore must be. Well, here is encouragement. 
So that when desire for the office begins to be born in a man's heart, he is not immediately smacked with discouragement. He's confronted with a faithful saying. So that he can have a sense of, a, of, a, of an openness to the nurturing of this desire. But then, after that encouragement is, the bishop must be. There is the standard that God has set forth, which is not to be compromised. And so it constitutes a warrant for addressing the subject before us. How can a man know? How shall we counsel and guide those who think, think that God may be moving them in this direction I say these weighty issues, the clear responsibility of every individual, Romans 12, the sober warning of James 1, the encouragement coupled with the God-given standard of 1 Timothy 3 does indeed give us warrant for addressing the subject of a call to the pastoral office. Until a man can move forward in the confidence that he ought to, he sins in moving forward. For Romans 14.23 says, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And brethren, for us in leadership, when men come to us, younger men or older men, who begin to have some stirring of aspirations, 2 Timothy 2.2 addresses us. The things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. Well, what will constitute a man, a trustworthy man to whom I and the church in its concentrated counsel and energy and perhaps even monetary support should give to this man the kind of concentrated focused training that will help him to be an able minister of the new covenant? If we don't know what a faithful man is, if we have no standard to evaluate it, to discern whether or not the head of the church has this man on the wheel and is forming him, then we're out to see pure subjectivism, sentimentalism. And so I say it is vital that we address the subject. And then the third thing I wish to address in this introduction of this second lecture is to just express briefly my own personal fears in taking up the subject. The issue is not a simple but a complex issue. And my fear is that I should personally or promote in others a perspective that encourages men where they ought not to be encouraged and discourages men where they ought not to be discouraged. This was one of the marks of the false prophets. In Ezekiel 13 and verse 22, we find this indictment of the false prophets. Ezekiel 13 and verse 22. Because with lies you have grieved the heart of the righteous, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way and be saved alive. Therefore, you shall no more see false visions. Here the false prophets were discouraging those whom God was not discouraging, encouraging those who ought not to have been encouraged. And Spurgeon obviously felt the pressure of this responsibility. And he wrote on page 24 of his lectures to my students, How may a young man know whether he is called or not? And I would say how any man. I think we've got to get rid of the notion. It's only young men. 
We don't find that in the Scriptures, brethren. Now, I know that often if someone is going to acquire the disciplines essential to be a competent man to labor, that often those things ought to be put in him in his youth. But I agree wholeheartedly with Thornwell, who smashes the notion that we only think in terms of young men. God may lay hold of men in, in the ripeness of their years, who have mature minds, who do not need the discipline of a formal theological education who can be greatly used. So, Mr. Spurgeon, do you mind if I drop the word young? Oh, he gives me permission, all right? How may a man know whether he is called or not? That's a weighty inquiry, and I desire to treat it most solemnly. Oh, for divine guidance in so doing, that hundreds have missed their way and stumbled against a pulpit is sorrowfully evident from the fruitless ministries and decaying churches which surround us. It is a fearful calamity to a man to miss his calling and to the church upon whom he imposes himself. His mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind. It would be a curious and painful subject for reflection, the frequency with which men in the possession of reason mistake the end of their existence and aim at objects that they were never intended to pursue. The writer who penned the following lines must surely have had his eyes upon many ill-occupied pulpits. Declare, ye sages, if you find amongst animals of every kind of each condition, sort and size, from whales and elephants to flies, a creature that mistakes his plan and errs so constantly as man. Each kind pursues his proper good and seeks enjoyment, rest, and food as nature points and never errs in what it chooses or prefers. Man only blunders, though possessed of reason, far above the rest. Descend to instances and try. An ox will not attempt to fly or leave his pasture in the wood with fishes to explore the flood. Man only acts of every creature in opposition to his nature. Spurgeon goes on to comment, when I think upon the all but infinite mischief which may result from a mistake as to our calling for the Christian pastorate, I feel overwhelmed with fear lest any of us should be slack in examining our credentials. And I had rather we stood too much in doubt and examined too frequently than that we should become cumberers of the ground. There are not lacking many exact methods by which a man may test his call to the ministry if he earnestly desires to do it, and it's imperative upon him not to enter the ministry until he has made solemn quest and trial of himself as to this point, his own personal salvation being secure. He must investigate as to the further matter of his call to office, he likes my terms. He is called to office. The first is vital to himself as a Christian. The second equally vital to him as a pastor. As well be a professing Christian without conversion as a pastor without calling. In both cases, there is a name and nothing more. Well, with those introductory concerns behind us and beneath us, now let's come to wrestle in the bulk of this hour with what I'm calling the foundational principles which must regulate our thinking and our actions regarding a call to the pastoral office. 
The first is this. We must be conscious that we are in the realm of what is called experimental divinity, or in more contemporary terms, the theology of Christian experience. Granted, all theology has an experiential or practical implication, and trace every revealed truth out far enough, and it should end up in doxology and in practical Christian experience. However, some aspects of God's truth are more precise and objective, others subjective and less precise. For example, when we are seeking to hammer out a biblical doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, there is a wealth of objective biblical material by which to frame our doctrine of justification. Justification by faith. However, when we take up the question, the way into faith... How does the Spirit of God bring a man to the faith, which is unto justification? Now we get into the area there must be some felt need, conviction of sin. How much conviction? Conviction focusing upon necessarily original sin? Sin as guilt, primarily? Sin as pollution, And there, you see, we're into the realm of experimental divinity, the place of the law, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. What place should the law have? How should it operate? And then when we come to understand that saving faith is not unto regeneration, but is the fruit of regeneration, how does the Spirit work? Jesus said his ways are like the wind. You can't tell where it comes from, where it goes. You see the effect. You're in the realm of experimental divinity. And there is not the same precision as with objective theological propositions and subjects. Because of this fact, two things are clear. Our thinking and the thinking of others is likely to be influenced more by temperament, by personal experience, by ecclesiastical association and environment than in other issues. We're in the realm of the subjective, the experiential, and therefore our own temperaments, our own personal experience, Our church associations and context will more likely influence our thinking on matters of experiential divinity. And secondly, this accounts for the tremendous diversity of perspective on this subject among very good and godly men. If you read Dabney on Justification, as I have recently done in my preparation for the series on Justification in his Systematic Theology, and then read Sermons of Spurgeon, where he preaches on Justification, Dabney and Spurgeon are essentially standing on the same ground, speaking with one voice. But now, as you read Dabney on the call to the ministry, and Spurgeon on the call to the ministry... We are at the two extremes of a permissible perspective on the subject. As I try to reduce them to their irreducible minimum, I don't believe this is simplistic. Spurgeon says, if you can possibly do anything else, don't preach, don't go into the ministry. Dabney says, if you can at all preach, 
Don't you dare do anything else. <laughs> Who do I listen to? I think you'll come to that conclusion as you read the two. Daphne says, unless the impediments are so clear and the obstacles so evidently of God that prayer and pains and effort and faith cannot overcome them, don't assume that if you're a sold-out Christian, and he makes a case for the fact there's no other kind of Christian, if you don't aspire for optimum holiness as a Christian man, you're not a Christian. So if you're not aspiring to the standard set for an elder, you're not a Christian. So Dabney says, if you can at all meet the biblical standard to aspire to the office, then you don't dare do anything else. Spurgeon says, if you can do anything else and maintain a good conscience, don't preach. Why? Why the imprecision? Because we are in the realm of experiential divinity or the theology of Christian experience. Now, because of this fact, I want to give you a little practical counsel, and it's this. Two words of counsel. Don't yield your mind to any one man's counsel on this subject, including the man standing in front of you. He has his convictions. I don't think they've been formed hastily and irresponsibly. But don't yield your mind to any one man's counsel on this subject. As you read Spurgeon, don't accept him as the guru as fully balanced, and the final word. If you do, you believe Spurgeon, some of you might not stay the rest of the week. You say, pack up and go home. No sense staying around any longer. On the other hand, if you take Dabney as the final word, there are some of you that may feel you ought to move beyond your present sphere of usefulness in the Church of Christ and aspire to the pastoral office without sufficient internal and external warrant to do that. So please don't read Dabney and fall asleep tonight without reading Spurgeon. And if you read Spurgeon, be sure before you come tomorrow morning you read Dabney to balance yourself out. So that's my first word of counsel. And then secondly, remember these biblical directives. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Put all things to the test. Hold fast that which is good. And for us, what is the test? Acts 17.11 These were more noble than they at Thessalonica, and they received the word with readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. Remember, we begin with the conviction, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that inspired and scripturated revelatory data is sufficient to make the man of God competent to every good work. And if scripture cannot clear up a man's call to the office and function of a pastor, where shall we go? And it's at this point that I do appreciate Dabney's comments. What then is the call to the gospel ministry? Before an answer to this question is attempted, let us protest against the vague, mystical, and fanatical notions of a call which prevail in many minds, fostered, we are sorry to admit, by not a little unscriptural teaching from Christians. People seem to imagine that some voice is to be heard or some impression to be felt or some impulse to be given to the soul. They hardly know what or whence, which is to force the man into the ministry without rational or scriptural deliberation. 
And if this fantastic notion is not realized, as it is not like to be, except among those persons of feverish imagination, who of all men have least business in the pulpit, the young Christian is encouraged to conclude that he is exempt. Let the pious young man ask himself this plain question. Is there any other expression of God's will given to us except the Bible? Where else does God authorize us to look for information as to any duty? The call to the ministry then is to be found like the call of every other duty in the teaching of God's revealed word. The Holy Spirit has ceased to give direct revelation. He speaks to no rational adult now through any other medium than his word applied by his gracious light to the understanding and conscience. To look for anything else from him is superstition, while the call of prophets and apostles was by special revelation, that of the gospel minister may be termed a scriptural call. Remember Proverbs 11 and verse 14 and its parallel thoughts in 15.22. Proverbs 14, I'm sorry, Proverbs 11 and verse 14. 14. Where no wise guidance is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. In chapter 15 and verse 22, where there is no counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors. They are established, and then we'll look at Proverbs 18.1 subsequently, where God identifies the separatist who cuts himself off and shuts himself in with his own judgment and makes that his rule and thereby is condemned by God. So, foundational principle number one is this. We must be conscious that we're in the realm of experimental divinity and the implications of that fact. The second foundational principle is this. We must approach the subject fully aware that we are considering the call to an ordinary as opposed to an extraordinary office in the church. The offices of an apostle and prophet and possibly evangelist are extraordinary offices which were generally imposed or imparted in an extraordinary manner by vision, by divine voice, in the case even of Timothy in his unique place, with accompanying prophecy and the laying on of the hands of an apostle. However, the office of the minister, the presbyteros, the poimen, the shepherd, the episkopos, the elder, who functions as one who teaches and rules in Christ's church, is of a fundamentally different nature. And this is critical in our thinking through what constitutes a call to the pastoral office. We must not revert to principles operative in a framework when direct and special revelation were being given. Dr. Clowney, in his excellent little book on called to the ministry, writes, how does the call to the ministry come in the 20th century, 21st century? For Saul of Tarsus, there could be no doubt, but no heavenly light has blinded you. 
You've not heard the voice of Christ declaring you to be a chosen vessel to carry the gospel to the nations. Just as we do not have the Urim and Thummim in matters of personal guidance, so with respect to personal guidance on this vexing question, what is a call to the ministry? We are talking about a call to an ordinary and not an extraordinary office. In his very helpful book, our brother Jim Garretson, writing on Princeton and preaching, focusing on the work of Alexander in Princeton Cemetery, Seminary, that, that was not intended. Alexander clearly understood this distinction and made it clear to his students. I quote page 535. In his lecture notes, Alexander distinguishes between two kinds of calls. The first he describes as ordinary, the second as extraordinary. When discussing the subject of an extraordinary call to the ministry, he's careful to observe that this is no longer the way in which men receive a call to the ministry. Extraordinary calls were often the result of direct inspiration. On other occasions, they came in some miraculous manner. Believing that the period of extraordinary miracles in Revelation had ceased, Alexander argued that the circumstantial aspects of extraordinary calls are no longer relevant for our time. Therefore, it is with the ordinary call that we must concern ourselves. And that's so critical, brethren. If someone comes to you with a faraway saintly look in his eyes and wants to tell you of how he just had this amazing, overwhelming impression upon his soul in prayer yesterday morning, don't be buffaloed by that. You say, my friend, I'm so glad you had a wonderful, warm, apparently precious time with the Lord. But what's that have to do with you validating that the head of the church is fastening you into one who should labor in the word and in doctrine and believe himself to be a gift of God to the church? You see, often people are intimidated when someone claims something that borders on some direct revelatory experience. But we can graciously challenge that if we are persuaded that this is an ordinary office for which there is an ordinary office and orderly, biblically grounded call to function in that office. I commend to you Owen, volume 4, pages 438 to 486. Owen, volume 4, pages 438 to 486. Now, in saying that this is an ordinary office and that there is an ordinary call, I am not denying that it is a divine call to this office. Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul says to the ordinary elders at Ephesus who came into their office in an ordinary way, take heed to yourselves and to all of the flock of God in the which the Holy Spirit has made you. A middle heiress of Tithemi. He has placed you. The Holy Spirit has placed you as overseers. Here is the divine action. Ephesians chapter 4. Wherefore, when he ascended on high, he led captivity 
captive and gave gifts unto men, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. They are a gift from the hand of the ascended Christ. And the Holy Spirit, who is the executor of the will of Christ on earth, he constitutes men overseers. However, it is the medium or method of the divine action in calling, placing, and giving. That's the issue at stake. What's the medium of the activity of the Holy Spirit constituting men overseers? What's the medium of the activity of the ascended Christ giving gifts unto men? And here where I believe, and whenever I say anything critical of of Spurgeon, I, I almost feel like I'm being profane. But I think Spurgeon's overly mystical view comes into play. Listen to what he says on page 24 of his lecture, The Call to the Ministry. In the present dispensation, the priesthood is common to all the saints. But to prophesy, or what is analogous thereto, namely, to be moved by the Holy Ghost, to give oneself up wholly to the proclamation of the gospel, is, as a matter of fact, the gift and calling of only a a comparatively small number. And surely these need to be as sure of the rightfulness of their position as were the prophets. And yet... How can they justify their office except by a similar call? Now, if he said except by as certain a call, but in totally dissimilar ways, I'd say amen. But the language here is except by a similar call. A call that puts the thing to me above and beyond that commitment that Dabney had, that we only know the will of God from the Scriptures, being enlightened and applied under the guidance and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it is crucial, brethren, in my judgment, that approaching this subject, we must recognize that we are dealing not with a call to an extraordinary office, but to an ordinary office. Then thirdly, If we're to tread safely in this matter, we must think of the call to the ministry primarily, primarily in terms of the biblical teaching regarding an elder who labors in the word and in doctrine. If the office is an ordinary one, then the primary directives for the recognition for that office are to be found in such passages as 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, and 1 Peter 5. They deal explicitly with the office of an elder. And since they deal explicitly with the subject, then surely they are the passages that must predominate in our thinking as we wrestle with this issue, what constitutes a call to the pastoral office. A failure to deal with the subject in this perspective has brought untold tragedy to the Church of Christ. I have known and been a part of ordination councils that meet and deliberate and examine a man and never once open 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. Hours given to theological examination, this and that, 
But nobody sitting down and opening up First Timothy, calling in a man's wife, seeking to see whether or not this man meets the biblical standard that God has clearly set forth. Do you stretch out for this office? Do you have a holy lust for this office? Then you must be. Let's see if you be what the Bible says you must be. And I say a failure. Credentials and licensing committees seem to be in great measure, indifferent to these things. Churches that operate by having a, a, a search committee and then a committee that decides who should be invited to come and preach trial sermons. Where and when do these passages take the place that they ought to take? Often not even read, let alone expounded and pressed upon the conscience of the aspiring preacher, pastor in any given situation. I say again, Dabney is a help to us in this matter. He says on page 29, what is a call to the ministry? This leads us to another important class of text by which the Holy Spirit will inform the judgment both of the candidate and his brethren as to his call. It is that class in which God defines the qualifications of a minister of the gospel. Let every reader consult as the fullest specimens, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Titus 1, 6-9. The inquirer is to study these passages, seeking the light of God's Spirit to purge his mind from all clouds of vanity, self-love, prejudice, in order to see whether he has or can possibly acquire the qualifications here set down. And his brethren, under the influence of the same spirit, must candidly decide by the same standard whether they shall call him to preach or not. Here at this point, I believe Dabney has identified a very crucial element. Suppose, suppose the leader of an army were to conscript certain men to go out and to uh, seek to find among the soldiers men who would be fit for an unusually intense and demanding function within that army. Some kind of super special forces like the SEALs. And he were given ten Clear requirements. Any man whom you consider for this particularly unusual, demanding military exercise, they must meet all ten of these requirements. What would the leader of that army think if those sent out with that commission came back and one man met seven, another meant six, another met nine? Well, we thought, you know, six out of ten, that you bat that and you hit 600 in the big leagues and Ted Williams' record is gone kaput. He would say no. I gave you ten non-negotiable standards. If they don't meet the standards, they're not qualified. Well, brethren, as we'll see, the First Timothy and Titus one, uh, Titus one and First Timothy three passages use the little imperative particle "day." It is necessary; they must be. And Peter, when he deals with those qualifications and qualities that must mark those who are overseers in Christ's church. So we are in the realm of experimental divinity. We are conscious that we are dealing, I trust, we are conscious with an ordinary as opposed to an extraordinary office. And all must square with the 
key and, and particularly relevant passages that deal with the office of a teaching elder. Now, we come secondly to take up the fundamental errors with respect to what constitutes a call to the pastoral office. And as I look at the clock and realize that I have just about come up on 50 minutes, then we're going to cut the baby here. I told you when we began I wasn't realistic in terms of how much we could get through, but this is a convenient place to break, and then God willing in the first lecture tomorrow morning, we'll take up with Roman numeral 2 the fundamental errors with respect to what constitutes a call to the pastoral office. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us as we process these things. Our Father, we thank you again for the confidence we have that your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And we pray as together we think through and wrestle with this vital question of what constitutes a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office O oh Lord, we continue to confess our need for light and, and discernment and wisdom. Continue to grant those graces to us and seal to our hearts the things we have considered together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.